Good evening to y'all. Welcome to RUF. I was totally clueless to the fact that most of y'all don't have class tomorrow. I learned that this morning. Um, This has been one long semester of learning things the day of or the day before. Um, But it's been good. We are here at uh, almost the end of our series. Next week will be the last week that I'm preaching. Um, And then the next week we will have senior speeches um, which has been a tradition here at Mercer RUF, a time to hear from our seniors, uh, what they've loved about RUF and how God's been working in their life, their time in Mercer as their time in Mercer draws to a close. So that'll be a sweet time, so make sure you come out uh, for that in two weeks. Tonight we are in John 14. You can read along in your handout, turn there with me. We'll be reading the first uh, 21 verses here. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it is neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we come uh, to these, our Savior's words, to his disciples tonight, He was betrayed. We pray that 
we as them would hear our Savior speaking so that it would be so, what he encourages them, that their hearts would not be troubled. Father, give us the peace of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's a a book by a sociologist, kind of a popular book, it was big in the news a while back, uh, by a sociologist called Christian Smith. I don't know that he's a Christian, his name's Christian though. Uh, But the book was called this, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Sounds like something you want to read, right? Um, basically, it was uh, the kind of the culmination of his work, his uh, research as a sociologist. And what the book basically is about is something that he discovered am- amongst young people uh, of our generation, around your generation, our generation. Uh, and it, it was what he discovered to be their understanding of God, and he labeled it this, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Okay, I'm not just throwing out big words. Um, to sound smart, but I'm going to go through those. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. It breaks down like this. Basically, how he found, his research found that most young people's perception of God in the world was this. God first blesses those uh, and lets into heaven those who try, who try to lead good and decent lives. It's moralism. I am what I do. Okay. Uh, The second one is the central aim in life is not to sacrifice or deny oneself, but to be happy and to feel good about oneself. So in other words, and that's the the therapeutic part, basically I am what I feel, okay? The third part is although God exists and created the world, he does not need to be particularly involved in our lives except when there is a problem. That's deism. Deism. Uh, kind of this belief in the watchmaker God that he made everything and then just kind of stepped back and was like, okay, let's see how this works. Um, taking, taking all that together, moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, basically what you have is a view of God that makes you uh, what uh, poet Henley described in his poem Invictus. It makes you the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. What do I mean by that? Basically, salvation and happiness, your meaning in life, your purpose in life, where you're going, how it ends, it's all up to you. That is moralistic, therapeutic deism in a nutshell, I think. Life is what you make it. Your best life now, we might say. Paradoxically, however, there was a New York uh, Times report in 2011 based on a survey that said that the emotional health of college freshmen was at an all-time low. Interesting. Uh, in the 25 years that they had been taking that service, the emotional health um, of college freshmen was at its lowest level. And the stress levels of college freshmen were the highest they've ever been. So happiness is your life now, what you make of it. But at the same time, that, so that's what your generation is kind of defined by. But at the same time, we're finding that your generation is one of the most stressed out generations ever. And a lot of people are nodding, I think. Okay, um, this I am statement, it might be one of the most popular. I, know, I think there's like thousands of VBSs every summer that have this as their theme, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Um, and, and as with a lot of uh, popular passages in the Bible, the context is easily forgotten. I don't want you to miss the context. It's the first verse there. Jesus leads with this. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's what he leads with. 
Okay, and he's speaking to something very natural to our condition. He's speaking to something that's all too familiar to our culture, our generation. I think I'm still young enough to say our generation. Um, basically, this heaviness that the world is against me. This overwhelming sense, this haunting that I am one failure away from screwing it all up. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus speaks to that here. When he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that is what he's speaking to. Not letting your hearts be troubled. And he speaks to it in two ways. The first one is that he's self, selfless, okay? Because in the preceding chapter, in chapter 13, John has just told us the same word troubled there, that Jesus was greatly troubled in spirit, so Jesus, the night of his betrayal, he's about to face death, he's about to face betrayal, he's about to be, uh, take the sins of the world on himself. He's teaching them one as one who knows what it's like to be overwhelmed with the world, okay? He's selfless. The second way he speaks to it is this, he says, after he says, let not your hearts be troubled, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. We hate Jesus when he says this, do we not? Jesus, what do I do? Believe. Thanks. Awesome. What do we do with that? How is that going to do anything? What Jesus is saying is there's something about me that I want you to focus on that will help you calm your troubled hearts. Okay? And I want to look at it in the three things that he says. The way, the truth, and the life. Okay? The first one's the way. And we see this in uh, verses 1 through 6. Okay? Remember the context. They're in the upper room. This is Jesus' last night on earth with his disciples. John records for us what no other gospel records. That Jesus sits down after the last supper and he starts talking and encouraging and leaving his last instructions. Why? Because he knows that his disciples' hearts are troubled. That's why he's talking. Okay? He's just told them three things. One, he's just told them that he is going to leave them. Two, he's just told them that one of them is going to betray him. Three, he's just told Peter in front of all of them, Peter, you're not going to make it. You're going to leave me. You're going to deny me three times before this night is over. Okay? So in other words, they are troubled at what Jesus is telling them. Okay, and so Jesus' first assurance there, before he says, I'm the way, the truth, and life, he tells them that there is a way, that he is going so that he can come back, so he can take us where he's going. There is a way. He says, you know where I'm going, and you know the way. And in verse 6, he says, he's the way. That no one comes to the Father except through him. And he said this before when he talked about being the good shepherd. He also said that he was the gate. He is the way in and out, okay? He said in chapter 6 when the crowd is arguing with him about the bread of life, he says, you did not choose me, I chose you, okay? He says, um, you don't know my father because you don't know me. He said this before. He's made this kind of claim to exclusivity um, before. And Jesus was not necessarily talking about a problem of pluralism here, but we have to address it, okay? And I want to address it real quick. That one of, the, one of the most repugnant aspects of Christianity to most people, and one of the things that we hate people bringing up, is that what Christianity ends up saying is, there is only one way to God. Our culture hates us for that. Hates the Bible for that. Hates people who take the Bible seriously for that. How dare you say that there is only one way to God? Even though we're not saying that we found a way and it's the only way. We're saying he said it. 
He said he is the way. Okay? It's this arrogant truth, and it's not just Christianity, um, that you make this exclusive claim to, that only you know the proper pathway to God. And what, what people would say is that that is the reason for rampant death, violence, war, and chaos in the world. And what they come to is this, what they think is the only logical conclusion, that religion is the barrier to peace in this world. Okay? Um, and there's two ways of dealing with that. Um, first, like the, the new atheist, you claim that all religions are poison. Okay? Um, but somehow their claim to have the right way, and their right way is that there are no right ways, somehow that is exempted from religious status, failing to see that their claim is just as exclusive as any other. But the second one is more dangerous because it pervades a lot of cultural issues that we're dealing with today, okay? And it's this. It's the view that says all religions are basically equal. All religions are basically teaching the same thing. All religions are basically different paths to the same goal. It's different paths up the same mountain. A guy named uh, Stephen Prothero, who wrote this book called God is Not One. And he's not a Christian, he's just a religious scholar. He makes this observation. It's there in your handout. He says, if practitioners of the world's religions are all mountain climbers, then they are on different mountains climbing very different peaks using very different tools and techniques in their ascents. Okay, it's a very refreshing take that Prothero takes because the premise of his book is he attacks head on this notion that all religions are equal by saying that that is just as dangerous to the world. Denying the diversity of religions is more dangerous than claiming one religion. How would that be? There's this classic folktale that kind of shows that illustrates this for us. There's a folk tale that there are several blind men in a room with an elephant, right? Okay? And each blind man, one by one, goes to the elephant to, to determine what it is. And the first one grabs the, the snout, trunk, whatever it's called, um, and he says, this creature is long and flexible like a snake, right? The second one goes up and grabs one of the massive legs of the elephant and says, this creature is thick and round like the trunk of a tree. Okay, the third one goes in and spreads his arms on the broad side of the elephant and says, this creature, is whatever it be, is large and flat. Okay? And so, like the blind men, what we come to the conclusion is that every religion sees, follows, describes only a piece of the whole. Right? Um, so no one, is, no one is only right. But I want you to see what the implicit claim there is. Okay? How can you know, if you are there, how can you know that each blind man is only seeing part of the elephant? If you say that you know that each blind man is only seeing part of the elephant, what you're claiming is that you see the whole elephant. Okay? So if you claim that every religion is grasping at some piece of the truth, but none of them have the whole truth, what are you claiming? You're claiming to know the whole truth, the very thing that you're railing against, okay? So we're back to square one. I just want to get this out of the way. I think it needs to be addressed, and we need to take it in, and we need to think about it, we need to think about how to talk about it. The fact that Jesus claims to be the only way to God is not offensive. It's not, okay? Why? Why? Because we are all exclusive 
in the ways, uh, in our beliefs about religion, albeit in different ways. To say that any one exclusive claim of religion um, isn't true is an exclusive claim in and of itself. We're all making exclusive claims, okay? Jesus claiming to be the way to God is not offensive. It all boils down to what C.S. Lewis lays out in Mere Christianity. He says this, I love this quote. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. What was he talking about? Jesus, uh, C.S. Lewis is talking about Jesus' exclusive claim to be the way because of his exclusive claim to be God. You cannot separate Jesus' claim to be the way with his claim to be God. Okay? So therefore, he cannot just be a good moral teacher. You only have three options. Either he was not God and he knew it, therefore he was a liar, so you cannot trust anything he said. Or he was not God but really believed he was, therefore he was a lunatic and you cannot trust anything that he said. Or... He really was God, therefore he's Lord, therefore we must hear, follow, and obey every single thing that he said. How does this all wrap up with calming troubled hearts? Jesus is looking at his disciples. His disciples are saying, we've dedicated our whole lives to you, and now you're leaving. Jesus looks at them and says, I am the way. I am who I said I am. You've not followed me for nothing. Next thing here is the truth, uh, verses 7 through 11. What is the truth that Jesus brings? What is the truth he's going to take us to or reveal? We see it in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. In verse 17, he goes on to say that we know the Spirit because the Spirit dwells in us. Okay, the disciples' hearts are troubled. They're realizing that they are about to be scattered. They're about to lose what they dedicated their lives to. They're about to, be, they're about to be outcasts. They're about to be considered jokes because they threw away their whole lives for this idiot that died on a cross. Okay? And what does Jesus point them to? It's what we talked about last week, the Trinity. Jesus talks, points them to the Trinity how God has existed for eternity. What has God enjoyed for eternity? What God has enjoyed for eternity is this. The Son has been in the Father, the Father has been in the Son, and the Spirit has been in both, and they've been loving and glorifying each other for eternity. That's, what's, that's what he's pointing them to, okay? And then we read in time, in Genesis, in the beginning, that this God who's enjoyed mutual self-giving love for all of eternity said, let us make man in our image. In other words, he was saying, let us expand the fellowship that we have known for eternity to man. So in other words, man is created to share in the joy that God has known in himself for eternity. Okay? So in other words, we're made for fellowship with God, but sin has separated us from it. And Jesus is saying his going away, his death, resurrection, and ascension to the throne of God completes the revelation of the Father. In other words, what Jesus is about to do, what's about to happen to him, what God is about to do through him, completely makes God known to us. And that is what we need We were made to know God, and because of our sin, we have refused to know him. 
And what Jesus is going to do is going to bring that full knowledge back to us. And that's precisely the truth that we need. John Calvin, at the beginning of this massive work known as the Institutes of the Christian Religion, at the very beginning of this, John Calvin says that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. Jesus is saying that it's that face that he will finally reveal fully to us. That God will finally look upon us fully. That the shining light of his countenance will be on us fully. And we will not be undone. We will actually be full of joy and love and fellowship with the one we were made for. And same, by the same token, get this. Not only do we fully know God the main point is that we are fully known by God. We're fully known by him. See, we're made for fellowship with God, but sin has separated us, and we know it. It's this problem that we're constantly dealing with, that we are not truly known, that we want to be in, but we're on the outside. I stole this illustration, but I'm going to make this fit. There was an article in the New Yorker in 1999 um, about hair dyes, hair dye, okay, women, use, I, guess, I guess guys do it now too, um, but back then it was just women, I guess. Um, hair dyes, the article was about uh, hair dye's role in the history of women uh, from World War II through uh, the feminism, feminist movement and everything. And what it goes back, it goes back to Clairol, right? Clairol is a big company. Um, back in 1956, Clairol had been making this product for a while, but they had this big advertising blitz um, that pushed that their uh, product into like major market, right? And they became this multi-million, multi-billion dollar company. And the slogan was this, does she or doesn't she, only her hairdresser knows, okay? So basically, does she use hair dye or doesn't she, only her hairdresser knows? And the point of that that slogan was up to that time uh, it was not really culturally acceptable to dye your hair. It was held that like genteel women did not dye their hair. Okay, and so the, the, the basis of the slogan was, it's so real looking no one can tell. Okay, and it, it helped them a lot. But the, the thing about the ad is that it came up in this time of like post-war consumerism where we all, you know, the what's it, meet, the Joneses, what's that slogan? Um, Keeping up with the, yeah, the Joneses or Smiths or whatever. Um, we're basically, um, you became to be defined by what you had, right? Uh, what you had made you what you were. And the author of this article, he makes this connection to feminism and the female psyche, and he says this. So the question, does she or doesn't she, it wasn't just about how no one could ever really know what you were doing. It was about how no one could ever really know who you were. That's college, is it not? I think you can be surrounded by so many people, but do they really know you? How is it, how is it that we can be the loneliest person in the, in the world in the biggest of crowds? How is that? Because we were made for the community of the Trinity and we feel this burden of wanting to be in but always feeling like we're out. This constant fear of rejection, this constant fear of never being accepted, of never being let in where we want to be. 
Uh, there's the, the constant need or desire to date only feeds this, right? If I can finally, just finally get a boyfriend or girlfriend, I will finally be in, right? What's that hop in your step when you've had a great afternoon or a great night with your friends? Why does it seem like the world is just better after those nights? It's because you were made for it. You were made for a relationship. You were made to enjoy those things. Real friendship then, though, just becomes a taste of what you were created for. Look at verses 18 and 20. Jesus says, I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. In verse 20, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Do you see what he's saying? You are in. I'm going away to where you will be with me one day because the truth is when you know my father and my father knows you, it means that you're in. It's why I came. Came to bring you back in. We will then in that day be finally in reality his treasured possession. When he looks at us, he will look at us and see his son. Most of our hearts are troubled because we deal with this fear of rejection. We know that our failings put us out. But what God says is he ushers us back in. How? Because Jesus was put out. He was taken outside of the city. He was hung on a tree, treated as an outcast, as a curse. Why? So that we could be brought in and loved by this God, and known by this God. What Jesus is saying is that that will change you. It will change you. You can say to yourself, I can pursue a relationship with the opposite sex, or I can pursue, I can just pursue friendships in a real way, instead of having to cast myself senselessly on those things, as if they are do or die to who I am because I know that my savior is my spouse, that he has bound himself to me forever. Because I have a relationship with this living God. You know that you're in. You know when you really know that you're in? When you're constantly looking out to bring others in the same way that Jesus did for you. It changes the way that we live. That's what I wanna close with, what Jesus closes with here our living, how do we deal with our troubled hearts? It's the way that we live, and it comes through the life. Jesus calms our troubled hearts because he's the way. Jesus calms our troubled hearts uh, because we come to know the truth. We come to fully know God, and we come to be fully known by God. And he calms our troubled hearts because in him we can finally live. Because in him and in him alone is life. How does that happen? Verse 16, he says it's gonna happen because he's gonna send us another helper. That's how it's gonna happen. That word can be translated in different ways, helper, comforter, counselor, advocate. It's this word that's so rich that we can hardly find one word for it. It's used elsewhere outside of the New Testament in a legal context, so like the, the idea of an advocate or a lawyer, one who goes before you, one who represents you one who comes alongside you. So uh, think about when you walk into the courtroom, the courtroom views you through what? Your representation. 
The eyes of the court are on you through your lawyer. If he's savvy, then you're savvy in the eyes of the court. If he's bumbling, well, then your case is probably bumbling, right? Uh, there's a classic example of this is O.J. Simpson, right? That guy was so guilty. It's like a, it's like a pop culture joke now how guilty O.J. Simpson was. But he was declared innocent because he had great lawyers. They were smooth. Uh, they were confident. They were cool. They had this great game plan. And the jury bought all of it. And it is a travesty of justice. It was terrible. Um, how does this deal with our troubled hearts, though? You got to understand, the verses immediately preceding, when Jesus says, let your hearts be, not be troubled, the preceding verse is still him talking. So it's a continuation of him talking. And what did he say right before that? Right before he said, let not your hearts be troubled, he said, Peter, you're not going to make it. Peter, you're going to deny me. You're not going to love me to the end. You're going to leave me. The disciples are dismayed. If anyone of all people, if Peter wasn't going to make it, what's going to happen to them? They're dismayed. So not only are they facing the death of their Savior, but what they're actually facing is the death of the view of, that they have of themselves. Because they realize that they're guilty. They realize that they're weak. They realize that they're broken. They realize that if it's going to happen to Peter, it's definitely going to happen to me. And Jesus says to that, I will send you another helper, another advocate. What does he mean? He means that you already have one. If the Spirit is another one, that means that you already have one. Who? Jesus. Jesus can send us another advocate because he's already our advocate. That calms our troubled hearts because we know that he is the one dealing with our guilt. But he doesn't deal with our guilt in such a way, he's not standing before the great judge excusing or explaining us away, trying to find some bend in the law to try to get us off, right? Jesus is not some smarmy lawyer. He stands before there and the judge says guilty and Jesus says, yes, but I paid for it. Most of our hearts are troubled because most of us are trying to be our own advocates. You know why you're stressed out? Because you've put the weight of the world on your shoulders and it was never meant to be there. We've taken the burden of weighing the balances of justice in our favor and it's exhausting. And for some of you, it's a genuine case of, of, uh, of guilt and inadequacy before a holy and righteous God. You know who God is. You see him as holy as righteous and you see that you fall so far short. And you say to yourself, you say to others, you just don't know where I've been. You just don't know. You don't know what I've done. And it comes off as help, humble, but you're trying to be your own advocate, thinking that you have to clean yourself up before you can come to Jesus. It does not work that way. You're trying to be your own advocate. The disciples think to themselves, Jesus, I know that you're faithful, but I don't think I'm going to make it. And what does Jesus say to that? Jesus says to that, I am the way and the truth and the life. Let that sink in. Jesus did not come to show us a way. He didn't come to show us how to clean up. He says that he is the way. Look at verse 12. How do I live? Jesus puts it like this. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do. 
So we're going to do greater things than Jesus. That's what he's saying. How in the world can that be? One of my favorite scenes, end with this. Favorite scenes in the, all of Chronicles of Narnia is in the Voids of the Dawn Trader. Uh, Eustace is um, Lucy and Edmund's uh, cousin. Uh, he's this bratty, spoiled, rotten kid, and you hate him as you begin to read this book. Um, and he ends up in Narnia with him, and all he does is whine and complain the whole time. They end up on this island. Eustace goes searching alone, and eventually he finds this huge pile of treasure. And he falls asleep on it, dreaming of what the world for him is going to be like now that he's got all this treasure. But when he wakes up, he finds that he's a dragon. And Lewis puts it like this, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. So in a, but in a very short time, he, he grows tired of being a dragon because he realizes he's going to be stuck that way. And he begins to despair. And so what he ends up trying to do, he ends up trying to rip the scaly dragon off of himself. And as he rips, he feels it coming off and he has hope. And he rips it off and he sees what he's ripped off there on the floor. But he looks down at himself and he's still a dragon. He goes again and he rips and he rips and he rips and he feels it coming off and he sees it drop on the floor. And he looks at himself and he's still a dragon. And then he meets this mysterious lion who comes to him and says this. You will have to let me undress you. And this is how Eustace recounts it to his friends. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right down into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the three other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. I'd turned into a boy again. That is such a beautiful picture. What calms our troubled hearts. Jesus says it's not about how we are gonna perform for him. Jesus is telling his disciples it's about how you're gonna live in him. The gospel does not come and say that my life is now defined by my doing. It says that my doing is now defined by the greatest words that have been ever been spoken. It is done. My doing becomes defined by done. I start loving righteousness because I know that I've been covered with it. I don't fear failure because I know he's covered that. It's nothing to do with what I've done, but everything to do with what he did. Verse 19, like he says, I live because he lives. And I know that he lives in me by his spirit. And you know what the spirit's primary job is? You look at there at verse 21, that last phrase. Spirit's primary job is to show us Jesus. We live as we see Jesus more and more and more and more. And the spirit's primary job is to show us Jesus over and over and over and over. 
I live, I do, because it's done. Because he did it. And he covered me with it. Jesus will go on to say in verse 27 of this chapter, peace I live with you. I leave with you, sorry. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither be afraid. What do you do with calmed, how do you calm the troubled heart? What are we gonna do with troubled hearts? Jesus says he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would take hold of us in such a way that it would pierce us to our very core. Father, that you would rattle the foundations that we have built for ourselves. That you would even bring them crashing down where need be. Father, that you would set us on the way that you would tell us the truth, that you would give us life. We long for that, and we know that only you can give it. We pray that you would. Even tonight, even right now, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.